the Lord and let's just ask for his special help uh, as we come around his word. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we want to praise you and exalt you this evening as the God of power, a God of might, a God of infinite power beyond our imagination who created the world by a word and who has given us a gospel which is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. So Lord, our simple prayer now is that you might come in your power as we open your word, that you might unleash your gospel and that your Holy Spirit might come and grip our hearts with conviction of sin, with a sense of the holiness of God and with the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. Help us to see him in all his majesty as John the Baptist saw him. We need your help now and we ask for it in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm not sure if it's apocryphal or not, but there's an interesting story told of the great preacher Charles Spurgeon. Uh, Spurgeon had agreed to preach at a certain church, but on the day of the service he was delayed in arriving, and so the show must go on, and they had a bit of a problem. As it so happened, Charles Spurgeon's father, John Spurgeon, was at this particular church. And since John Spurgeon was also a pastor, they asked him if he would begin the service and lead the worship and the prayers. And so he did this, and eventually, as time marched on and Charles still hadn't arrived, John launched into the sermon. About halfway through the message, Charles Spurgeon burst through the back doors of the church and in his characteristic style, rushed to the front, ready to take over the proceedings. Dear sir, he asked his father, where have you got to thus far in the sermon? I've told them at length of their sinful state. I've preached that they are separated from God, his father replied, and that they have failed to keep God's law. Very well, said Charles. Since you have told them of their sorry state, now I will apply the remedy of mercy and grace in Christ. Now that's a telling story, very interesting insight that it offers us. Because I think it teaches us very visually about something of the true nature and the full nature of the gospel, the good news about Jesus Christ. Because Spurgeon Jr. and Spurgeon Sr. both grasped that before we preach Christ, that before we offer grace to people, that before we preach the Savior, we must first of all confront the sinner and say, repent is the biblical word, turn around from your godless way of living 
And then, and only then, trust Christ. And as we begin our new series in Luke's Gospel tonight, which we've titled Good News of Great Joy for All People, because of Luke's global emphasis, I think we'll see this very same pattern in the preaching of John the Baptist. The very same gospel in his preaching. John, who we read, was a gospel preacher. With many other words, our text says, John exhorted the people and preached the good news to them. So, would you turn with me this evening to Luke's gospel again, and chapter 3, which Peter read for us. As we examine that good news, and as in the process, the good news examines us and challenges each one of us. I've titled this sermon, From John to Jesus. It's not a very catchy title, but in its basic chronology, and also in its emphasis, as you read through the passage, everything moves from John, first of all, to Jesus. The spotlight shifts as we read through the text. Now, Peter was saying earlier on that Luke is a, a very logical and rigorous kind of teacher. And we find this in these verses as he explains something of the gospel. He unfolds it in a very logical way. And what I'd like us uh, to do is to look at it in three aspects. First of all, we'll see that the stage is set by Luke as he sets the context into which the gospel is preached. Then we'll see that the The way is prepared as John begins to preach the gospel that he preaches for repentance and prepares the way into people's hearts. And then thirdly, we'll see that the king is proclaimed as John points to Jesus Christ as the one who is the Savior. So let's begin where Luke does in verses 1 and 2. The stage is set. I remember some years ago, uh, this is the pantomime time of year, going to a, a pantomime show And pretty near the the start of the program, part of the backdrop, the stage, completely collapsed. And they obviously couldn't fix it while the show was running. And I can tell you, it sort of ruined the feel of the show. See, the the backdrop is very important. It, It gives the context, it gives the feel into which the drama and the message comes. And Luke understands this. And he firmly sets in place the backdrop to what comes. And he describes the world of John and Jesus. To begin with, historically. He gives us an idea of the date uh, in question. He says that it was around about the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar. That was approximately 28 AD, give or take a year or two. Why on earth does he do this? Well, suffice to say that in Scripture, when a date is given, it usually underlines the importance and the significance of something. Very interesting to note the fact that the birth of Jesus is not given a date by Luke in the Gospel. We don't know when it was precisely. And yet the coming onto the national scene of John the Baptist and Jesus is of such a significance that we get the historical timing. But Luke not only provides a backdrop in this way, he also gives us the political situation. 
this reference to Tiberius Caesar reminds us that the Jewish people were living under Roman occupation. Tiberius was the Roman emperor. His empire ruled over much of Europe and the Middle East. And Israel, this little nation, was assumed under Rome's mighty authority, a pagan authority. It was a slight to the Jews, a humiliation that they lived under this pagan power with its pagan gods. And then to make matters worse, this wasn't just a theoretical rulership, but actually on the ground there was corrupt local government. See, what happened after the death of Herod the Great, who lived in the time of Jesus, when when he died, his large territory was divided up between four people. Governors, tetrachs, they were called, who ruled them. Pilate received the territory in the south called Judah. And of course, he will return later in the gospel. Herod Antipas got the region to the north in Galilee. Philip had his brother the region to the northeast, Eterea, and Lysanias governing Abilene to the north. Names which mean very little to us, but to Theophilus, the Greek believer to whom Luke is writing, these would have been well-known names, infamous names, corrupt men, brutal men, immoral men. And then, as they say, when you just think it couldn't get any worse, guess what? Because Luke adds that, spiritually speaking, two things are in chaos. He speaks of the priesthood of Caiaphas and Annas, indicating that there was a puppet hierarchy in place at this time. See, usually the way it worked was there was only one high priest at one time. If you were a high priest, you were appointed for life, you were appointed till the day that you died. But Rome, with its power, had decided simply to depose Annas. And it put in his place Caiaphas, his son-in-law. And yet in the reality of things, Annas was still pulling the strings behind the scene. And so what Luke says is literally true. It was the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas. See, this was a dark time. This was a difficult time to be a Jew. And don't forget, it had been 400 years since the prophets had spoken. God had been silent. There had been a deafening silence for four centuries. It really couldn't get much worse than that, could it? Peter spoke this morning about failed hope. And as we look to this world, it seemed very much like a hopeless situation. Maybe as we look into our world at the moment, with all the conflicts and difficulty, with the religious decline in our nation, we think it seems very hopeless. But I love this aspect that Luke brings in in verse 2. That into that world, the word of God came to John the Baptist. It came into an unfertile climate, like the calling of a prophet of old. Again, if you were here this morning, you maybe remember Peter led us through the opening verses of Jeremiah. And there are parallels as you listen to these two prophecies read. Just listen to this, Jeremiah 1. The word of the Lord came to him, Jeremiah, 
In the thirteenth year of the reign of Josiah, son of Ammon, king of Judah, and through the reign of Jehoiakim, son of Josiah, king of Judah, down to the fifth month of the eleventh year of Zedekiah, son of Josiah, king of Judah, when the people of Jerusalem went into exile. Do you see how similar it is in many respects? You get the historical date, you get the political situation, the spiritual decline. And into that situation, the word of God arrived. And likewise with John, just like the prophets of old, he receives this message and he comes with authority because his word is a word from God. And it doesn't even matter that he's in the wilderness at this point when the word of God comes to him. Which is a reminder that God can work away from the centers of power. From the most insignificant place a nation can be changed when there is a genuine word from God. Now, isn't this tremendously encouraging? Maybe you think that our nation is hardly good soil for the seed of God's word. And maybe you are right. But here's the news that Luke tells us. That the word of God doesn't need good conditions to grow. I was sharing with the children I think it was last Sunday morning about a crocus plant that my son had brought home for me. And every year, uh, it's around about February time, as I'm walking through the meadows, they have these beautiful crocuses that always suddenly emerge. And the last two Februarys, I'm sorry to tell you this, is snowed, very thick snow. And it's been such a strange sight as I'm hurrying down to work. It's so freezing. Get down there as quick as I can. And these beautiful crocuses are just peering out of the snow. Crocuses grow in unfriendly climates. And the word of God is like that. God's gospel is like that. Maybe you think of your own situation. Friends, neighbors, and you think, I don't have very fertile soil. But the word of God has the power to come in. But what is the gospel? What is God's good news according to John the Baptist? Well, in verses 3 to 15, we find out. Because after this stage is briefly set for us, next we hear the preaching of the gospel according to John. It's very interesting when you compare Luke's gospel to Matthew's account and Mark's account. They tend to focus much more on John the Baptist, the messenger, the man, and we hear all sorts of details about him. But in Luke, the focus is almost all on the message. And as John begins to preach the gospel, notice how he starts. He starts with a call to repentance, by which the way is prepared into the hearts of the people. Now, I suppose if you went out into the wilderness and you were standing at a distance and just catching bits and pieces of what John the Baptist was preaching, you might have thought that this was a very positive, encouraging message. Because after all, you hear that he's preaching something about forgiveness, verse 3. And why, who doesn't want to be forgiven? If you go into any university up and down the United Kingdom today, and you go into a debating hall, and you talk about the Christian view of sex ethics, you possibly be thrown out. You certainly might not be appreciated. 
But you go into that same debating hall and you talk about the Christian view of forgiveness and people will like it. Very acceptable to most secular people. And no doubt John's audience were impressed by this. And what is more, there was something else. Because for the more religiously inclined, they would have been making some connections here, as Luke does when he quotes from Isaiah chapter 40. Doesn't Isaiah speak about a voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord? Here's John the Baptist in the desert preaching like a prophet of old. So he's preaching forgiveness on the one hand. And on the other hand, he is in some way fulfilling this messianic prophecy. And this sounds very positive until, until they start to hear this word coming through again and again in the middle. Repent. 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 He went into all the country around Jordan preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Yes, forgiveness is available, all right, but repentance is the key that unlocks the door. Now, to repent simply means to turn from your own way, your selfish way, your godless way of living to God's way and His way. And this is an essential part of the gospel. If you're not a Christian, you need to hear this part. And if you are a Christian, well, you know as well as I do that this is one of the most difficult parts to convey to someone who is an unbeliever. Don Carson, uh, who's a biblical scholar, has been going into universities doing missions for over 25 years. And recently, I was listening to him being interviewed, And he was describing the differences in universities over that period. He said, 25 years ago, the most difficult thing to get across to students was the historicity and the facticity of the Bible. And things like the resurrection of Jesus and the deity of Christ. Nowadays, he says, you go into a university and you speak about the fact that Jesus is God and that the Bible is God's infallible word. And most people say, fine. That's your view? Fair enough. The most difficult thing, he said, to get across, by far, is sin. Is the fact that we are morally corrupt in the sight of a holy, perfect, and sinless God. So, we need help with this. If Don Carson, with his great intellect, struggles with this, then we need help with this. And I think we can get some help from John the Baptist here this evening. How did John preach repentance to these people? Here's a couple of things that we can draw from this. First of all, he calls them directly. John does not pretend that these people are something that they are not. He, if we may put it this way, tells them it's straight. And even today, though we don't use this uh, idiom, it still carries across, poisonous snakes doesn't sound very complimentary, does it? It suggests, in biblical terms, deceitfulness. And so John is saying to these people who thought, perhaps, that they were morally good, you're deceived and you are deceptive. That's the negative aspect. And then he says, and in case you think also that you're good in the way that you're living, you're also fruitless trees. 
You're not only doing bad things, but you're not doing good things either. You're fruitless. And then just to cement this whole outrageous call, he adds that as they repent, as an outward symbol, they have to be baptized, immersed in water. Now, this was an absolutely shocking thing. Most of John's audience were Jews. Maybe not all of them, as we'll see in a moment, but most of them were Jews. And baptism at this time was a Gentile, a non-Jew practice. Jews didn't get baptized in these days. Proselytes, those that wanted to convert from any kind of Greek background to Judaism, had to be baptized. You're a Gentile. You're filthy, therefore, and you have to be cleansed, so you're baptized. And yet now, John says, you Jews, you people who are descended from Abraham, you need to be baptized too. Do not begin to say, he says in verse 8, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. You see, you might come from the most religious type background, but in God's sight, there is still something lacking. It's an important point, this, actually, that we need to be direct with people. Maybe we don't apply it in quite the same way that John did. But we do need to call people for the situation that they're in. And it may be that you're here tonight, and someone has to have the guts, it's probably me, to say to you, actually, in God's sight, you are a sinner. You need to get right with God. Maybe you say, don't you know my background? But you see, that's John's point. I was reading a book over the Christmas period that I found very uh, helpful. It's by a guy called Carl Grosten. It's called Growing Up Christian. And it's particularly for those that have come from a religious home, from a Christian background, maybe especially good for younger people, but not exclusively. And he talks in the book much about dangers that are peculiar to those who come from a religious, moral home. You know what his first danger is in the book? False assurance. False assurance. Assuming because you are from a Christian background, Or as these people were from a Jewish background, I must be right with God. Right? Wrong. The second thing that he mentions here is the fact that he calls them immediately. And he has two images which are very powerful. He says that the axe is at the root of the tree. And he says that the fruitless tree will be burned. The point is that judgment is coming upon unrepentant people. But, mark this, It is coming quickly. Again, Peter was saying this this morning. None of us in this room knows when the Lord Jesus Christ will return. In God's economy, it is soon. And therefore, if you're in a house and it's burning down and I'm your neighbor, it's only right that I come and I urgently bang on the door. And if you realize that you're in a house that's burning down. You don't say, I'm going to think about this. You know, just give me 20 minutes to think it through. You make your way for the exit. That's the point. John calls these people to repentance directly, immediately, and universally. 
seems like this crowd was a, a fairly mixed group. Most of them were Jews. But some of them, particularly the tax collectors and the soldiers, were no doubt Gentiles. And I think this is probably confirmed by the quote from Isaiah. Interesting, again, when you compare Luke with Matthew and Mark, that Luke extends the quote and we get verse 5. And all mankind will see God's salvation. See, the call to repentance goes out to all people. In the last point, I said that your background does not exclude you. But here's another wonderful thing. Your background doesn't preclude you either. Whatever you come from, religiously, ethnically, geographically, temperamentally, whatever your status, whatever your gender, the gospel is good news for you and for you and for you. It's for all people, says Luke. And therefore, it's important that as we take it out, we don't discriminate. We share it with all. But the flip side of that, the fourth thing, is that John calls these people specifically Specifically. And this is really something of a preacher's dream. What happens next? Because usually in a sermon, once you've explained the passage and you've tried to illustrate the passage, uh, it's your job to try and apply it to people to help them see what they should do about it. But in verse 10, notice what happens. Very interesting. The crowd say to John, the preacher, how can we apply this? How do we repent? And in verse 12, the tax collectors ask the same question. And in verse 14, the soldiers ask the very same thing. And what is interesting, though we can't examine all the detail, is that the responses that John suggests are very specific. They are specific to the sin of the individual. So the crowds, who are mainly made up of probably poorer people, some very poor, some maybe not so poor, John says, if you have a spare tunic, share it. If you really want to turn to God from selfishness, then show it in this little small way. And yet to the tax collectors, who were pretty rich people, because of extortionate practices, the angle is different. He says, don't collect any more than you have to. Don't be greedy. While to the soldiers, the soldiers weren't very well paid in these days. They were pretty low paid. And therefore, they often bullied people and bribed rich people by accusing them falsely of things and then extorting the money. And he says, don't accuse rich people falsely in order to top up your wages. Now, you see what the lesson is in this. We must all repent, but it will look different from, for you than it does for me. Whether you're not a Christian and you're coming to repent for the first time, or you are a Christian and you're repenting for the upteenth time, it must be specific. Remember Zacchaeus, later in Luke's Gospel we'll come to him, the tax collector. When Jesus came to his house and when Jesus said salvation came to his heart, what did he do? Unprompted. He expressed his repentance by paying back all the money that he had stole from people four times over. Why? Because that was his particular stronghold of sin. Now, I know this is sensitive, but what is your sin stronghold? We all sin in many ways, but what is the area or areas in your life where if you repented, that would be something that would need to change? 
Would it have implications for the way you do your job? More honesty? Implications for the way you conduct relationships? More purity? Or some other area? What might John the Baptist say to you if he was here this evening? Now, maybe you're saying at this point, well, I understand what you're saying. I would love to respond to this. But I don't think that I could do this kind of change. And you're right. You are right. It is not possible to do this in our own strength or to be our own saviour. But the wonderful completion of the gospel preaching now comes. So after the stage is set and the way is prepared, finally, thirdly, the king is proclaimed. Now this was a very crucial point, actually, in the passage as we come to verse 16. John has been preaching this message of repentance, and despite maybe some of the concerns that the crowd had, many of them were still coming to be baptized, and they were evidently very impressed by John. After all, no one had come like this for 400 years, preaching the way John preached, confronting them with the very words of God. And so, you can understand that they leapt to conclusions. Perhaps John is the Messiah. Maybe he's the Christ. One translation puts it that they were on the tiptoe of expectation. But John quickly and decisively dispels any doubts. He's not the Christ. There is one coming after him and he is greater. Or in John's language, he is more powerful And we see this in two ways. First of all, he's more powerful in terms of his status. But one more powerful than I will come, the thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. Now in this culture, taking off someone's sandals was a task for slaves. But look at what John is saying. He says that this task is above me. It's above me. He says that Christ is so great that I shouldn't even be his slave. It's quite a statement, isn't it, of Jesus' superiority. And yet he was absolutely right. Have you ever considered that? That Christ is so great that we really don't deserve to be his slaves. Maybe you think sometimes being a servant of Jesus is a lowly place. John thought it was too high a place for him, such as the power of of the status of Jesus. But notice a second thing. John says of this Messiah that he's more powerful in terms of his accomplishments. And in two ways. First of all, John preaches for change, but Jesus brings change. John the Baptist offers an outward cleansing through water, but Jesus offers an inward cleansing with fire. John cleanses the body. Jesus cleanses the soul. How? By his Holy Spirit. And John is probably referring here to Pentecost, particularly after Jesus had died and rose again and ascended into heaven. He had made this promise to the disciples, stay in Jerusalem for the gift that I promised. And in the day of Pentecost, the Spirit had come in power upon these fearful disciples. And encourage them to speak boldly the gospel. But the Spirit not only came to empower the disciples. This is very important. I've never seen this before. He also came to cleanse. 
The fire is an image of cleansing in the heart. You know what fire does? It purifies the dross from gold. And so you see, whatever it is in your life that you think you can't change, the Spirit of God can. Because Jesus has sent the Spirit to do that work in you. That's why you should become a Christian tonight if you're not. God's given you the resources. But here's a second thing John mentioned also. And this is a warning to us. It's not an encouragement. This is a warning. That John preached judgment. But Jesus brings judgment. And therefore he is more powerful than John. The image that he uses is that Jesus will sift out the wheat from the chaff. In these days the farmers would sift and separate the wheat by taking a pitchfork or a winnowing fan and they would toss the wheat up in the air and the wind would blow the chaff away allowing the wheat, the good stuff, to fall to the ground. And Jesus will not only sift the wheat to save the good stuff but he will also do it to blow away the chaff. He is the judge of all men. You know, in the Bible, the judge image is always and only ever applied to God. John says, Jesus Christ, this man, is also God, and he will judge the unrepentant. Scary thought. It's meant to be scary. And this is the gospel. That's the point. John uh, comes, comes to it in verse 18. With many other words, John exhorted the people and preached the good news to them. What you say, that was the good news? Yes, that was the good news. The poverty of the sinner's soul and the riches of the sinner's saviour, that's the gospel. The insufficiency of man and the sufficiency of Christ, that's the gospel. And so here's what I want to ask you tonight. If you are a Christian, if you're a follower of Jesus, is this the gospel that you are standing on and that you are sharing with others? When someone asks you the reason for the hope you have, is this the gospel that you share? When that opportunity comes up this week and someone asks you, what is it that you believe about life in the world Is this the gospel that you're going to preach? And I want to say to you, if you're not a Christian tonight, is this the gospel that you have believed in? You see, forgiveness is available. That's the good news. But only if you travel the road of repentance. Will you believe the gospel? Will you turn and trust the Savior? I hope you will tonight. Let's pray.